Hi, this is Allison Sheridan of the NoSilicast podcast, hosted at podfeed.com, a technology geek podcast with an ever-so-slight Apple bias. Today is Sunday, September 11th, 2022, and this is show number 905. Well, I am super excited to take a trip to Dynamic Island next week. I am not going to regurgitate the Apple announcements, but rather bring you fresh content you can hear nowhere else but here. I do have to say that the live chat room was hopping this year with fun people during the announcements. I think Dave Gerlitz described the vibe perfectly in a letter he wrote to Steve and me. Part of what he wrote in his letter was this. I wanted to thank both you and Steve for making me feel so welcome today in the Discord Disco, where all the cool kids come and comment during Apple events. Isn't that a perfect description of what it's like? It's so much fun in there. Make sure next time, if you didn't join us this time, you try to get in there because we have a really good time. All right, let's get into that original content that I promised you. This week, I had a blast as a guest on Clockwise with Dan Morton and Micah Sargent and fellow guest Joe Rosensteel. We answered pressing questions such as, are you ultra enough for Apple Watch Ultra? Is Apple Watch marketing out of control? Who is this really for? We also answered the question, do you ever do a full nuke and pave of your Mac? How often? What event makes you go for it? Do you have a process? And will you be upgrading to an iPhone 14 this year? If so, which one? And finally, Apple adapted their events from onstage presentations with some video segments to a very polished long-form video presentation that Tim Cook described as a film. Is there anything about the format that you wish Apple would change? And the bonus question was great fun. It was, what color was your childhood bedroom? And I had a really funny answer to that. Anyway, out of all those questions, can you guess which one of these was mine? You can find Clockwise in your podcatcher of choice, or of course, there's a link in the show notes to episode number 467, Off-Road for Two Seconds of the Clockwise Podcast. Hi, this is Bruce from East Tennessee with a tip about the visual lookup that exists in the macOS Photos app. Well, I didn't know about it at the time that I started this adventure, Allison actually spoke about this same capability back in October of 2021 in her blog post titled iOS 15. These are a few of my favorite things. Apparently, I don't listen as carefully to everything Allison says as I think I do. But she was talking about the Photos app on iOS, so I may have kind of tuned out. Or there's just too much to remember. After all, how many times has Allison found out that the answer to a current question is a blog post she wrote a while back? But I digress. The problem to be solved, trademark podfeet, in this case is that my wife and I saw an interesting plant in a botanical garden while we were on vacation. That plant wasn't labeled, and we were really interested in what that plant was, as my wife wanted to know if it would work in our garden. And we were at the Kew Royal Botanic Garden on the west side of London, England, so not being able to find a label around all of the instances of that plant was a bit unusual, and it's a very open question whether something growing near London will or should grow in East Tennessee. After all, as a friend pointed out, I do live at the same latitude as North Africa. And just because a thing can grow someplace doesn't mean it should be planted there. Kudzu, as just one horrible example, grows quite well in this climate. So, as we were reviewing pictures on my Mac, we came to the ones I'd taken of this particular plant. I had the info pane open, and this particular picture had this little bitty icon in the middle of it, sort of like a leaf, if your eyesight's good. 
And my wife asked me what that icon was, and my response was, I didn't know, and it was sometimes there and sometimes not. I noticed it while I was reviewing photos on the plane coming home, but it just gave me a no info found response when I clicked on it, which turned out to be a bit of a duh, as I wasn't connected to the internet on our flight home from Europe. But we were connected to the internet at home, and so we tried clicking it again. This time I got a window telling me that Photos thinks that this plant is from the genus Echium. And with that information and a bit more searching, I'm now about 98% confident that this plant is Echium Pinamana, a.k.a. the Tower of Jewels. It's definitely not native to East Tennessee, coming originally from the Canary Islands. But I know enough to be able to do the research for whether this non-native plant is something I can consider, as well as to look for other plants in this particular genus. So, digging back into this visual lookup a bit more on macOS, what I discovered is that the visual lookup icon only shows up when the info pane is showing, and only if Photos thinks there's something there that it can tell you. If you go to the blog post for this particular tip, you can see that photo from Kew Gardens, but without the info pane showing. No icon. If I turn on the info pane, now I can see the visual lookup icon showing up for this particular picture right there in the middle of the photo. And clicking that icon shows me what Apple Photos thinks is relevant for this photo, which is that the plant is from the genus Echium, as I discussed a few minutes ago. Doing a bit of digging into this and experimenting, I find that this feature came in with iOS 15, as discussed in Allison's article, and with macOS Monterey, as discussed in the Apple support article that's linked in this blog post. In my experimentation, I find that the plant and animal identification is useful, but maybe sometimes a bit off. It has been enough, however, to get me to the right answer. So I would consider the results a useful starting point, but not anything authoritative. I've also experimented with this for some other images, and those results have been sometimes less satisfactory. If, for example, I had a photo of a well-known painting, I suspect that the results would be more relevant. But as one example, the visual lookup icon shows up for a photo I took of Her Majesty the Queen Elizabeth II edition of Monopoly which I took on tour of the HMS Britannia in Edinburgh while I was there. But photo simply comes back with no info found when I click on that um, visual icon. Now, that's not entirely a bad thing when considered from a privacy perspective. My interpretation is that Apple Photos is running an algorithm locally to predict whether or not it can find additional information for this particular image. But it doesn't actually send anything out to the Internet until I ask for that additional information. Now, not getting any additional information is a bit of a disappointment. But given the choice between the algorithm being wrong sometimes and photos sending a bunch of things out to the Internet without my asking, I'll take the current Apple Photos choice. Unfortunately, sometimes whatever photos is using for a search comes up with some interesting answers. One of the things that I often do when I'm visiting places is to take pictures of the informational plaques so I can read them carefully later and look up more information. 
Photos thinks it might be able to find more information about an informational poster I took a picture of when we were in Linlithgow, Scotland. But it turns up information about a completely unrelated book for sale. So, not so useful in this particular case. So, your mileage may vary in terms of whether this is useful to you. The key thing to know from a macOS standpoint is that you'll only see the indicators for when Photos thinks it might have additional useful information on a photo if you have the info pane showing. I hope you find this tip useful and stay subscribed or whatever it is that we're doing today. Well, yes, we're still staying subscribed, Bruce. Well, anyway, I love this tip for so many reasons. First of all, Bruce pointing out that even I don't know what we've talked about. So how on earth should all y'all be able to be expected to remember if I can't remember? Secondly, I never realized it was in Photos for Mac OS, probably because I didn't think to look for the change when the info panel is open. I've also had experiences like Bruce's where it does really well on some things and is a complete miss on others. It can recognize things like uh, in images like the Taj Mahal, but maybe not your local library building. I do also want to point out that Bruce sent in this tip ages ago, and so there was no disrespect meant about now that the Queen has passed. He talked about the Monopoly game with the Queen on it, and that was before she passed. So I delayed a long time in playing this, so this is all on me. Thanks again, Bruce. Keep these fabulous tips coming. Last week, I announced that I was going to do yet another nuke and pave because I was exhausted from all the weird problems I inherited from Migration Assistant. I'm happy to tell you that I started the process on Monday, and by Tuesday evening, I was about 90% complete. Even though it went swimmingly, I have many thoughts about the process. Before doing a nuke and pave, one backup is mandatory, and having two backups is just common sense, because after the pave, you would have no backup at all otherwise, because one thing is not a backup, right? So I use Carbon Copy Cloner to backup my full system and data to an SSD, and I have an off-site backup with Backblaze. But if I'm going to blow away my internal drive, I need to have a replicant of that backup drive. Invariably, I will have forgotten something that I can only get to by booting to the external SSD, and just that act of booting from it can change its content. Think of it like forensic evidence. Before you start touching it, you need to work off of a copy. My strategy for the last few years is to make a sparse, a sparse bundle disk image on my Synology and then back the SSD up to that sparse bundle. Every year it's an adventure trying to remember how exactly to do that. It requires some incantations and disk utility on the Mac and then moving the sparse bundle from the Mac to the Synology and then putting the data inside the sparse bundle on the Synology. Now, like I said, I have trouble remembering this process, so I pinged Stephen Getz and asked him, how do I do this? How have I done it in the past? He's really good for that kind of question. I then remembered that I had documented my process in Keep It from reinvented software. The process I documented after creation of the disk image was to just hand the copy over the files from my backup SSD to the disk image on the Synology. Just drag them over. I ran this idea by Stephen and he said, and I'm quoting here, that's how I was going to suggest you do it. So I tried to just copy over the pieces I really needed to preserve first, like hidden files and my user library where all those weird settings live. Then I got more aggressive in moving other files, and since I was succeeding with those, I got bold and I tried to copy over my photos library. Things went downhill quickly and I never got a full backup completed. I started this process at 9.32 a.m. on Monday, and at 4.16 p.m. I gave up on having a complete duplicate of my SSD. I spent seven hours on and off fighting with this method. 
I told Stephen I was finally giving up because I just needed to do the nuke. And again, I'm going to quote him here. Do you know what he said to me? You are finding out why I never use Finder to back up my Mac. I would have just aimed Carbon Copy Cloner at the sparse bundle. He's the one who said I was doing it right the first time. Well, I told him I thought he was a terrible person and that he didn't love him anymore. Well, I'm still annoyed at him for not saying this at the beginning of the day. I'll come back around to the topic at the end of this article. So I have to say that the paving part was actually delightful. My mind map wasn't very stale since I'd done this just 10 months ago. I've also been honing this mind map for ages now, and it gets more complete and easier to follow every time I go through it. App developers have also come a long way towards improving how to move the settings you create in apps. To review my mind map, again made with uh, iThoughts, I have on the right side of the mind map are all of the apps I need to install, and I categorize them as mission critical, high priority, and low priority. On the left-hand side, I list all of the tasks I need to perform using those same three categories. Most of them are associated with apps, most of these tasks, but there's also operating system tweaks and things like moving hidden files like SSH keys and gitignore files. At this point in the story, I need to step back and address the fact that Bart is positively apoplectic listening to this uh, me talk about having to move my SSH keys. What he is yelling into his iPhone right now is, I taught you how to use ShameWA to manage those dot files like SSH keys and gitignore files. He is absolutely correct. We had many lessons in programming by stealth on this very subject, and it would have made my life easier and more predictable if I had applied what I had learned in those lessons. But because I don't often switch computers, the overhead of setting it up and remembering how I set it up and remembering how to use it when I needed it was greater than the effort of simply showing hidden files with command shift dot and then command dragging all of the dot files over to a folder I have in Dropbox. I went into this with my eyes open, and I'm sure for those of you who use many computers who move computers often, Shemwa is a much better choice than the way I did it. Okay, with that intermission, back to my story. As I mentioned, uh, as a recent improvement to my process, I created a Dropbox folder I call Nuke and Pave. This is where I put copies of any setting files that I'm going to need on the other side of the Nuke and Pave. So, for example, in Audio Hijack, I need to export all of my sessions and then import them into the clean system. So I made a subfolder in my new Compave folder on Dropbox, and I called it Audio Hijack, and I dropped my files in there. By putting them in Dropbox, I know as soon as I install Dropbox on the newly paved machine, I'll have access to them in the Finder. I also made a folder for my hidden files. Back on the left-hand side, where I document all of the tasks associated with the different applications, I document that I have to remember things, like exporting audio hijack sessions before I nuke. Well, I do my best to review the left side before nuking, and I color code these preparatory steps. I make them bright red to make sure I remember to do them. I always end up missing a few. This often means booting from my backup drive and then rebooting, rebooting back into the paved system. This is time-consuming and annoying, and it also it's slightly dangerous because, as I mentioned, you don't want to touch that last pristine backup until you absolutely have to. So this year, I decided I needed to improve the preparation process. I didn't want to mess with the instructions for each app over on the task side of the mind map, but I thought it would be an improvement if I had one consolidated area for preparation before nuking. I thought to the rescue because it has the concept of linking between nodes. This year, I created a top-level node on the right-hand side called prep work. 
Inside that node, I simply put the names of the apps that required prep work. No detail at all, just the names. I then created a link from the detailed steps over on the left to the app node under prep work. If you look at my mind map, I put a link in the show notes, you see that there's just a big arrow on all of those nodes that just have the names of apps. If I click that arrow, it jumps me over to the preparation that I need to do. So now the prep work node is very simple and easy to follow, while the actual prep work is still quite messy and has lots of operations required. All right, before the nuking, I had documents and desktop synced to iCloud Drive, and I was storing originals locally since I have plenty of space. But when the paving happened, iCloud Drive was turned on, and I made sure documents and desktop were checked, and my photos were unchecked. I wanted to separate the slog that is downloading my photos from everything else. What I didn't notice, and surprised me, was that documents and desktop were set to optimize storage, not full size or full res or whatever they call it as expected. It's not full res, that's only images, but you know what I mean. The way I figured out this problem was happening was kind of interesting. As I was working away installing and configuring apps, after a while I noticed that I was getting slow behavior from the operating system. For example, command tab to open an app or to switch to an app would take like two seconds to actually switch. If I double clicked a file in the finder, it would take a couple of seconds to react. I knew I hadn't yet crufted up my system to be causing this, so I opened up Activity Monitor to see what was slowing things down. I found a process at the top of the list called File Provider D that was chewing up more than one full CPU. I looked it up on the internets and discovered that it's the daemon that manages optimized storage for iCloud Drive. Once I found the checkbox, I turned off optimized Mac storage, my files began to flow in as originals, and File Provider D stopped slowing my system down. Now, it was not obvious to me where to find the setting to control whether iCloud Drive used optimized files. In iCloud System Preferences, under your Apple ID, you see the pretty little graphic list in the upper right with checkboxes for each of the services you want to sync through iCloud. Inside iCloud Drive, the checkbox for Desktop and Documents was selected, but there was no option for optimization. I went back to the main page and I found a little checkbox underneath the graphic list that said Optimize Mac Storage, and that was inexplicably checked. It does make some sense in this location now that I look at it, but since Photos Optimize Storage is in a completely different place, I didn't think to look there at first because that seems like something that would apply to everything in that list. I'm kind of surprised that it did this as I've never seen it checked before after a nuke. Yet another thing to add to my mind map. I would like to, uh, to issue an official apology to Migration Assistant for one thing that I accused it of and it was unjustly accused of. I mentioned that I was getting these really annoying Dropbox notifications every time the WordPress plugin Updraft from my website tried to delete an old backup in Dropbox. I said I had no idea how to fix it because I don't know why Dropbox was complaining and it would let it delete it before. Well, after the nuke and pave, the exact same behavior happened. So as I started thinking about it, it didn't really make sense that Updraft was able to delete things on my drive because that's software running on my web server. I was reinstalling my Hazel scripts when I found the one that I had created telling Hazel to delete old backups from Dropbox. That makes a lot more sense. Not only that, the easy solution to the pesky Dropbox notification was to simply click a very obvious checkbox that said, don't ask me this again. I apologize to Migration Assistant for this misrepresentation of guilt, but only on this one item. 
Okay, maybe I have to apologize for a second thing I blamed on migration assistant. Remember one problem was that Steve could not see inside my desktop and documents folder when he was connecting to my machine over the network? The same behavior was there after the nuke and pave. Turns out the problem was actually that pesky optimized Mac storage option. As soon as I unchecked that box, Steve was again able to see inside the folders. So I guess I have to apologize to migration assistant a second time. Well, as I installed my apps from scratch, I started realizing how some apps are better than others in making our lives easier on installation and configuration. I came up with several different ways to describe my favorites. There, I've got, so I've got a bunch of different lists. Now, I'm not going to call out any of the more annoying apps by name, but just kind of describe why I think they're annoying. The first criteria for favorites is how does the app's installer work? Well, the clear winner is Mac App Store apps. It's easy. It's all in one place. You just click and move on to the next one. I love Mac App Store apps. The next best apps are those whose download is the application itself. Like you don't need an installer. Just downloads the application. You drag it into your application folder and you're done. Next are apps whose download is a DMG disk image. Usually with these, you double-click to mount the disk image, and inside you get a big arrow demonstrating how to just drag the application onto an application's icon that they've created for you. It's one extra step from the previous really cool apps, but it's still really easy. Next up are apps that use a package installer, a PKG file. I dislike these because after you double-click to launch the installer, they make you agree to a whole bunch of steps that are identical in every single app you ever install with a PKG, so it's a complete and utter waste of time. They include the terms and conditions in there, but, you know, there's not many of us who read them, so again, it's kind of a useless step for most, and I find it kind of annoying. But there's apps that are worse. There's apps that make us reboot after installation, and I just find that annoying. Now, some apps trigger a warning on the general tab of security and privacy. Now, I'm not talking about the apps that are asking for, example, accessibility controls. I'm talking about the general tab. And I, I can't remember what these are called. You have to see one to know what I'm talking about. And But it's not a really big deal. You go over to the general tab of security and privacy. You unlock uh, with, with your finger authenticate. And then you check the box to allow that installation. But I don't actually understand what's different about these apps to make them require this. The other problem is, it's really often that I find these apps will tell me to go look there, but it simply doesn't show up there. And I know what it's supposed to look like, so if it's not there, there's no way to agree, and I find it really aggravating, and I often have to download again and try to install again, try to get it to trigger it over in system preferences, but it doesn't work. Those really bug me. Lastly are apps that make me lower my security level by rebooting into recovery, selecting reduce security, and checking the box to allow user management of kernel extensions from identified developers. Now, one of my favorite and most useful apps I use on my Mac requires this change to security. I know why the app requires this step, and it's really it's the way Apple does things, and it's not even a kernel extension, but it's still a pain, and I don't like having lowered security, security levels. The second app that requires this has not been updated to Apple's new way of doing things, and the company is just too lazy or understaffed or complacent to fix it. They did file Chapter 11 recently, uh, bankruptcy, so maybe that has something to do with it. Now, I didn't complete this list. I'm going to add one more than what's in the show notes, and that's apps that after I install them, I can't get them to work. I am really annoyed with one of my apps. I can't get it to work. It controls a smart home device, and I can't control my smart home device, and it's really, really bugging me. 
So a completely different way of judging how much I like apps is how they deal with their licensing. Let's do another list. What are my favorite ones with the way they deal with licensing? Mac App Store apps. Again, it's a clear winner. There's literally no license key. You don't have to store anything. You don't have to retrieve anything from your password manager. Now, some apps with in-app purchases do force you to push a restore purchases button, which is a little bit annoying. It's fine and easy when it works, but I've got an app that does absolutely nothing when I push that button. I think I have an in-app purchase, but to be honest, I don't know how to track down whether I bought it or not, but I'm pretty sure I did. I would think the app would either say, purchase is restored, or you didn't pay me anything, you deadbeat. You know, some kind of feedback, that would be swell, but this one just sits there and lets me push this placebo button. So next up after Mac App Store apps are apps that have a simple license key you copy from your password manager and you paste it in. The good ones have an obvious button to give it your license key, and the best ones give you, say, confetti or say thank you in audio. Next, there's apps that let you copy and paste your license key from your password manager, but in this, I don't know, passive-aggressive move, they, they hide where you're supposed to paste it. They often give you a buy button that's super obvious, but they obscure the enter license option. I don't know why they do that. It's like, why don't you put it right in front of us so I can prove to you that I already bought it. Next are mini apps that require approval of certain privileges in security and privacy. Now, I don't blame them because if a screenshot app is going to capture your screen, it makes sense that you should be the one to give them permission to do so. If a video conferencing app wants to be able to turn on your camera, it should politely ask first. I do approve of this. But some apps make this approval easier than others. Their very best have cute little animations to show you how to give these permissions. One of them actually shows you a fish, and you get to drag the fish onto a graphic, and that enables the privileges. I have no idea why it's a fish, and I have no idea how they did this fun little, little uh, animation, but you know what? It's fun, and I don't get angry when I have to do it. The next best of these simply puts the language in the text. They'll say, open system preferences, security and privacy, privacy tab, screen recording, and check the box. But one of my apps just said, enable privileges in security and privacy. Like They didn't tell me which privileges. They just goes, yeah, just go find it yourself. You know, I'm just not going to tell you. There were zero clues about the privileges it requires. And now I have enough experience, especially with this app, to know what it needed, but it could have made finding the right accessibility preferences a lot easier for me. Finally, some apps make you uninstall or unlicense first on the computer before you nuke. That one has caught me out many times requiring more process steps out of the prep work in my mind map. Now, I use a lot of apps that need to be tailored to my needs. I mentioned earlier that Audio Hijack has sessions you create for different audio routing scenarios. For example, I have one for recording chit-chat that lets me record me and the other person on separate tracks. And I have a completely different session for the live show when I'm only routing audio and not using Audio, audio Hijack to do the recording. In Hazel, I have a lot of different scripts that run depending on which folder she's watching and what I want to do with the files she's found. In Transmit, my preferred FTP client, I have settings for each of the different servers I need to access. In Under My Roof, I have all of the data for my home, including receipts and photos of my belongings for insurance purposes. These are just a few examples of the things you have to make sure you preserve from the nuke over to the pave. So I made another ordered list of how much I like the different approaches apps have for helping you preserve settings and data like this. Number one, apps that sync settings through the cloud. 
doesn't have to be iCloud. I like iCloud, but it could be Dropbox or some other cloud services. But if you're always just syncing that data for me, I don't have to remember to go get it for myself. I launch the app, I tell it to start syncing, and everything I need comes in. The second best are apps that have an export or, uh, sorry, I should say, an export and import tool for those settings. Next are the apps who, uh, the where the developers send you the double secret hidden library file that may or may not work if you copy it across from the nuke to the pave. But you know what? These developers are great. They send me these instructions. They go, I wish you the best of luck. It might work. Finally, the ones I really dislike are the apps that make you take screenshots of every single page of settings to reproduce those settings on the other side. I have a lot of those. But I'm happy to say that most of the apps now have very reliable methods of syncing data, so I don't do nearly as much faffing about as I used to, but there is still enough that it makes it really important to do that prep work. Now, I want to add one more honorable mention category to this list, and I have to call out the app by name in order to explain it. Folga is the app I use for creating tutorial guides with screenshots with annotations. When viewing the list of guides you've created, the developer, Alexi, very clearly included a backup and restore button right next to the green create guide button. When I reviewed Folga for the NoSilicast, I even told you all about it, so I knew that button was there. You absolutely can't miss it. But Bruce just told you, Allison doesn't have a very good memory, so I forgot to do it before I nuked. See why I need to add the prep work node to my mind map? Well, I was really hoping to avoid booting into my backup to push that, that button to export, even though I knew it was there. So I wrote to Alexi and I asked him whether the guides I'd created were maybe buried in my user library folder somewhere where I could just drag them over from the backup instead of booting into it. He got back to me really quickly like he always does, and he told me that indeed I could just drag the files from the old library to the new one, and it worked perfectly. The reason he gets extra points is because of what he wrote after the instructions. He said... May I ask you one thing? How would you ideally expect Folga to behave in such a backup story like yours? Isn't that lovely? He's in constant search for how to improve his tool. Now, this was clearly my fault. His tool had the button and I just forgot to push it. But he asks those questions. What else can I do to make it better? Now, the last method of judging apps has only one entry in it, and it's how fast does the download happen? Out of the 84 apps I downloaded, 83 of them either downloaded before I even had a chance to check in them, or they were hugely capable apps that made sense that they'd take a minute to download. But the 84th down app downloaded inexplicably slow. And when I checked Activity Monitor to see my network speeds, it was downloading at 750 kilobytes per second. I said I wasn't going to call out apps for bad behavior, but this one's so mainstream, I feel it will be interesting. That 750 kilobyte per second download was Firefox. I have no idea why it was slow that day. Now, I'm sure most of you, you've just been waiting through all of this to find out, but Allison, what happened with your photos download? I decided to wait until I have my system up and working well with most apps installed and configured before unleashing my photos onto the system. I toyed with the idea of using Migration Assistant to move just my photos library because Pat Dengler said she was pretty sure I could do that, but I flinched. I just couldn't use Migration Assistant after what it had done to me. I turned on iCloud Photo Library, I set it to down, download originals, and I just let it go to town. Now with this method, having moved no copies, I don't copy those over, I don't bring them from a backup, I just download originals, Apple gives you the optimized images first, so you get access to your images much more quickly. 
If the thumbnail is there, you can always open it, and Photos will go download that one image ahead of all the others. As I've mentioned before, the full download took more than three days the last time I went through this process, and I've taken a lot of photos in the last 10 months. I have grandchildren. Why not? I got to tell you, I was shocked. It was less than two days after I started the download this time. It was completely finished. And I have no idea how soon it actually finished because I never thought to go look because I thought 90,760 photos and 2,500 videos would come down that quickly. So I wasn't watching it, but it did. They came down very quickly. And if you've got a huge photos library, I would definitely recommend don't move any of your files. Just start to download originals and they'll come down quickly. Now, I still wasn't happy with the half-baked backup I ended up with on my Synology, and I promised I would come back and revisit that at the end. I decided to try Stephen Getz's second recommendation to have Carbon Copy cloners simply make a backup from the SSD over to the sparse bundle on the Synology. This was not a quick process, but it was predictable and it was successful, which is highly different from the way I did it before. Carbon Copy Cloner backed up 2,620,623 files for a total of 1.4 terabytes of data from my SSD to my Synology over gigabit Ethernet in 32 hours, 39 minutes, and 51 seconds. This time, I added a new entry to my mind map, suggesting that two days before I want to do my nuke and pave, I should start backing up my backup drive to the NAS, and I put that under prep work. The bottom line is that the time and energy I put into doing the nuke and pave this time was about one-eighth of the time and energy I put in trying to diagnose the stupid spotlight problems alone, and I was never even successful in fixing it. And that doesn't even count how much time I wasted chasing down all of the other janky behavior. I don't think I will ever try Migration Assistant again. Now, here's one last fun data point to close this out. I had... 168 apps installed before the new can pave, not counting the 30 pre-installed apps or any of the other Apple utilities. After the new can pave, that count dropped to 84. I think that's remarkable. 50% of the apps I had installed in just 10 months didn't even make my low priority list. Now, I know I load a lot of stuff on my Mac, but even if you're a more normal person, I suspect you could cut your app count by a lot if you did a new and pave now and then. By the way, I've downloaded another app since I wrote that part of the story. Okay, one last, last, last point. Steve, during the live show, just asked me, he said, but Allison, were your spotlight problems fixed? Yes, they are. Everything is working perfectly on my new machine. Have you heard an episode of Chit Chat Across the Pond or the NoSilicast in the past few months that inspired you in some way, or maybe made you laugh, or actually made you more productive? You can show that appreciation by sending a donation through PayPal. Christoph Trusch did that just recently with his quarterly donation that he always makes. Longtime No Silla Castaway Janet Chesney also sent in a generous donation and included a note that warmed my heart. She wrote, Thank you for the No Silla Cast podcast. Still my fave. I told her that my, her kind words mean even more than the money, but that I'll graciously accept the money. If you'd like to be swell like Christoph and Janet, just go over to podfeet.com slash PayPal and choose the amount of currency you would like to donate. Thank you so much, Christoph and Janet. Well, it's that time of the week again. It's time for Security Bits with Bart Boo Shots, but I think we're, uh, this is actually an off, off weekend, but we're trying to get back on cycle. Is that right? 
Actually, I'm trying to keep us off cycle for a bit longer. So it is actually two weeks since the last one, but it was me and Tom Merritt instead of me and you. Okay. Okay. So, uh, but do we have one next weekend? I No, I think I want to keep us off cycle for one more and oh, then okay. I want to do a, a two quickies. Okay, that sounds good. Well, I'll have more more time next week. This week was completely consumed with doing my uh, nuke and pave, so this is a uh, good time for it. Well, actually, it's conceivable that in three weeks when we go back to a normal cadence, I might be talking to you from a Mac studio. Ooh, it's, the parts it's coming, are right? all arriving. Well, the, the, all of the parts, like everything is ordered. My full setup, so it's like uh, the same XLR uh, doohickey you have audio interface that's the word um, I have a stream deck they've both arrived I have a new boom mic that's arrived I have the monitor arm you recommended that's arrived actually the Mac Studio's arrived as have the magic trackpad and keyboard what I'm missing is the display oh right 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 the studio display so my you, studio display is have is, you taken uh, the Mac Studio out of the box and touched it and pet it or anything uh, half. It's taken out of the uh, ugly shipping box and is now sitting in a nice shiny white box waiting for me to you have it. You haven't opened the white it. box? Oh my gosh, how can you No, it? it? I, I can't do anything with it right now and I am very, very busy with stuff. Today is the closing day of something very, very important. So, okay. You know the way I do this thing where I compartmentalize stuff? I actually am disciplined enough to compartmentalize away play with new Mac. That is next weekend's... <sighs> Stronger man. I, by which I. time, I really hope I have a screen. If I don't have a screen by next weekend, I will be mildly cranky. Yeah. Well, here's to hoping. So we should probably hit Fingers the security crossed. bits. Yes, indeedy. So since last we spoke, well, I say we, me and, me and Tom, but you were listening. That was fabulous, um, by the way. Loved it, loved it, loved it. That was it. very fun. And I, I hope, I think Tom said he was game to do it again when you go traveling. So hopefully that becomes a thing we do. That yeah. would be so much fun. Uh, Okay, so some feedback and follow-ups, which is all follow-ups, really. Um, We have been following the saga of the Twitter Twitter edit button. It would appear to be closer to reality, rolling out as an actual beta to some users in some countries. It will be a paid-for feature. You will have half an hour to edit, um, and there will be a history. So no editing. Basically, you can edit for the purpose of fixing your typos and not being cranky at yourself, but everyone will be able to see the full history. So this is not a way to trick people into retweeting something they disagree with, all of those other things people were afraid of. As best as I can tell, they've dotted their eyes and crossed their teeth. I want this for one very specific thing. When I post a a tweet and I forget the alt tag on the image, I can't tell you how many times I do that. Ah, just hit send. Okay. I'll do you one better. I forget the image. I describe in great detail the photograph I'm sharing, only I forget to attach the bloody image. <laughs> do you remember Which to do an alt tag on the image? Well, I don't do an alt tag if the entire body is the description. Because yeah, okay. then the body is the alt tag. Oh, but okay. if the image is a bonus extra, then absolutely I do. Um, and the the, the, the the official app makes it really easy. Like, it really puts it in your face, like, alt and giant big letters, you know, click me here. Like, it, it's very good. I'm good on them, I say. We... Also talked a few months ago about a very an internal Facebook report that was that was leaked by the Intercept, and basically what the report was was a bunch of Facebook engineers saying to senior Facebook management, "Don't promise regulators anything. We have no idea what data we have or how we use it, and if you promise them, we can't deliver." Well, that has now been released as part of a court case. So that report from The Intercept, 100% verified. Facebook have no idea where the data is or how it works. They just basically they use trust, it. You mean bec- because they don't understand the algorithm? 
they don't no, know the they don't have is. any sort of control. So basically, each separate part of Facebook, because Facebook isn't a monolith, right? Facebook is 20 million systems hooked together into one interface. But under the hood, is you've got like millions of engineering teams, and they're all taking data and doing their own thing with it. But there's no gatekeeper. There's mm. no governance infrastructure. So move fast and break things meant there was never a mechanism for managing the data flows. Huh. Everyone was just monetizing them as best they could. So now you're trying to retrofit into a system that's been jury-rigged over years, right? Because it wasn't designed, it just grew. So I always think of these systems as being like the Weasley house. It's like, (laughs) how can this stand up? It's got all these bits stuck on and all the different sides. And no no one built into the Weasley house a mechanism for even seeing the data flows, let alone controlling the data flows. So if you promise to a regulator that you will not use location data for X... You can't make that promise because you don't know. That's every terrifying. every story like this is more and more terrifying. Yeah. So that report is real. We now have it officially as part of court documents. Zuzuch. Action alerts then. Um, patchy, patchy, patch, patch time for people with older iPhones. So those of us with newer iPhones and Macs and everything, we got an update last time we spoke. Well... That was followed a little bit later by the same patch being rolled out to iOS 12 so that older devices can get a patch because it is a zero day and it is being actively exploited. So if you have an old device that you're still running iOS 12, you have a patch, apply it ASAP. If you run Chrome or Edge and you haven't closed your browser in a while so it hasn't had a chance to auto-update itself, now will be a fantastic time to close it and open it again so it can update itself because there's a nasty zero-day affecting Chromium-based browsers too. It's interesting that all you have to do is close it and open it again and you never see it really happening. Well, it's always, they install a little agent that runs all the time, which means that even if the browser is closed, it's still actually updating itself. Which is a bug and a feature, I guess, because there was a there was literally a bug in the Mac version of their agent that caused your whole Mac to slow down. <laughs> so that's why people on Chrome had slow Mac problems. Um, you just have random CPU spikes. It was really ick. So, so I've got Edge open right this. now looking for because I did look for this. You know, I, I just did the nuke and pave, but I got this notice about the zero day on uh, Chrome and Edge. And so I tried to see whether it did it. And if you look in settings, there's no settings for update. I don't, I don't it, even know. It would be in about, wouldn't it? Isn't that where this stuff hides in apps in uh, this modern day? That's where most apps keep their updates yeah. these days. Is in, yeah, is no, about. there is no. Well, it'll tell me or what actually, version Zoom has it under the zoom.us menu. So maybe it's under the edge menu. Uh, yeah, so that... That that led that took me to edge colon slash slash settings slash help and it says edge is up to date so I guess I'm good. That that is yeah if it, if you're up to date you're good, <laughs> and if it says restart needed, do that. Restart needed. Okay. Uh, which yes, so there are two important updates. Um, in terms of worthy warnings, Samsung decided to let us know that back in July they uh, were hacked and they lost a bunch of customer data. Good news, bad news sort of situation. Good news, no payment data and nothing as horrific as social security numbers. Bad news, enough information to make really convincing phishing attacks, including all of the devices you own and stuff, so you can really target into the point where it's a believable fish. Okay. So if you are a Samsunger, beware that Samsung have lost your data. Uh, Meanwhile, United States citizens... Yeah, this is just an icky story. Um... 
the f- on the okay, swings and roundabouts. The good news: the Federal Trade Commission are suing a company called uh, well, I don't know how you pronounce K O C H A V A Kochava. That's what I'd go with. Yeah. So they are data brokers, and they sell location information and try to map it onto anonymous identifiers. And they actually give away free samples that are horribly privacy invading. Just a free sample, let alone the actual data set. So they can track you to wonderfully places like, you know, places of worship and doctor's offices and all these kind of things. So you can pretty much figure out what's wrong with you, uh, what religion you are, all this kind of stuff based on this supposedly anonymous data. It's it's not good. So they're being sued. That's how egregious they're being. Um, so I guess the good news is they're being sued. Yeah, I'm, I'm curious what they're being sued specifically for. I wonder, but I could read the article at mycobserver.com. Yeah, I was going to say, I didn't quite feel like digging into US law to that level. Yeah. Uh, uh, notable news then. Uh, we, have not, we have found out, not from Apple. Uh, Apple don't really... Apple tell us that they have security stuff in macOS. And they, they call it XProtect, and that is literally as much as they tell us. They tweak that thing under the hood all the time. And I think the idea about not bragging about it is not to draw a target on their back. They're mm. basically, they're keeping quiet and doing the work. But the security community like to watch what Apple do while they're not bragging about it. And uh, it's developed a new feature, which they have had a look at the various text files and stuff and found that it has a name, Xprotect Remediator. That's not a or word. Remediator. It's not a word, but it is a cool name. Okay. I just think of, you know, Marvin the Martian, the remediator. Um, it is a proactive malware scanner. So much more like a traditional AV. It will actually proactively, when your machine is not in use, so when your CPU is free, it will fire itself up in the middle of the night or whenever you're just not using your CPU and go proactively hunt for malware. Will it let you know if it finds it? Or will it just... If it finds it, it will remediate it. So everything it has, it has... everything. is in a word. What does that mean? Destroy. Kill. Okay. Disable. Remove. It's Everything XProtect does is about known malware that they can just make go away. So they make it go away. There is no real user interface to XProtect. They just step in and do things. Okay. So, you know... Yeah, so basically it's it's developed a new skill. It's now, it doesn't only scan on access, it now proactively scans your disk. Excellent. Which is step forward. Yeah. yeah. Um, I have a fire extinguisher next to the next story because lots and lots of people have been setting their hair on fire. Um, you and I are both very big fans of 1Password, but there is a competitor that is at least as big and quite similar in its features these days. It's LastPass. I mean, LastPass is Great definitely the other big player. Great yeah, alternative. absolutely fantastic. You know, like I say, both of us happen to like 1Password, but perfectly valid. You know, it, yeah, they're, they're, they're peers. They're, yes. they're both good. Yeah. And LastPass suffered a security incident, and they were very good about sharing detail on their website. So I have a link in the show notes to their blog post, blog.lastpass.com. And they're very open about what happened. And because of how they've architected their system, the one thing that could never have happened is that they could never have stolen any of the user's passwords because it's end-to-end encrypted before it leaves your device. So that didn't happen. It couldn't happen. Uh, The only thing that happened is that one of their developers were phished and therefore the attackers stole some of the source code. 
So the attackers now know how LastPass works. But that's it. So, on the whole, there's really no there there to this story. I've heard people say, oh, that's it, I'm done, I'm leaving LastPass forever. And I'm thinking, why? Unless you were already cranky. Unless it already wasn't having a feature that you want. Unless you already wanted to go somewhere else. Why should this affect you in any way? This is evidence that their system works. Not evidence that there's some sort of reason to sod off. So, if you don't believe me, Naked Security have a blog post entitled LastPass Code Breach, Do We Still Recommend Password Managers? Question mark. Hint, hint, yes. Okay, so they they didn't lose even encrypted passwords? They didn't even lose encrypted passwords, but even if they had, that wouldn't have been the sure. end of the world either, but they hadn't. They didn't even lose that. Right, right. Or a customer database or anything like that. And they were also super upfront about what happened. Yep. And the important line, and then they're putting in new measures to stop that happening again, which is always how you should respond to a security incident. What happened? How did it happen? How do we stop it happening again? Right. Well, good. So to me, it just ticked all the boxes. And I mean, and in a way, it's, somebody, it's, it's an advertisement for why LastPass and, and 1Password are really good is that even if they lost the data, you still can't get into it. Exactly. Exactly. It's a trust no one architecture. And that's how you should design these things. So it's perfect. Yeah, exactly. So I see this as a story of this is why we use these things, not panic, set your hair on fire. And as always, the root cause is the squishy bag of water, right? Mostly the water. squishy organic bits are always, always, always the problem. It was ugly bags of mostly water in that Star Trek episode. Yeah. Um, we also then have a timely reminder of why it is important to keep your NAS boxes patched as opposed to parched, as the show notes currently say. Keep them hungry. <laughs> Fixed. Actually, no, keep them thirsty. Actually, you probably should. Don't water your NAS. Do keep it parched, but also keep it patched. Um, And if possible, keep it off the public internet. Um, Naked Security are reporting a fresh round of attacks by the Deadbolt ransomware that is going after known bugs in the QNAP NASes, which people who are not quick to patch their QNAPs are getting hacked, or people with old enough QNAPs that they can't be patched are getting hacked. So if your QNAP is new enough to patch, patchy, patchy, patch, patch, and if it isn't, get it off the internet. And by being on the public internet, are you talking about these methods? I don't. I forget what it's called, where the vendor gives you a way to access your data through them. Uh, like you can get to the Synology through the through the web. There's a web interface to get back down into your Synology. Are you called? Is that considered on the public web? If the attacker can hit the IP address, then it's on the public internet. I don't know exactly how the QNAPs work, so I don't know exactly the ins and outs of it, but if it can be accessed from the internet without you having to VPN somewhere, then the if you can get to it from the internet without doing anything to to secure that connection, so can anyone else. Well with to attack that's it. a that's a big if without doing anything to secure that connection. But uh okay, well I'll dig into it. Can I take this next one? Sure. So a lot of people were talking this week about uh, Patreon confirming that they laid off their entire five-person security team. And I, I wanted Bart to put this in the show notes, even though it's probably not a big story, because uh, there's there's a couple things to think about with this. Um, number one is we think what they did was they've just outsourced their security. 
And that could be bad. That could be good. But they actually haven't told us that's what they did. They've been kind of vague. And, and their vagary, I think, is what's hurting them from a, from a PR standpoint. They could be more specific. We found out because a woman who was on the security team put it in her LinkedIn profile that she and the rest of the uh, team had all been laid off. So that's that's one thing to think about. But the other thing is, especially talking to Nocella Castaways, who may be Patreon um, patrons, especially of this podcast and Bart's podcast, I wanted yeah, you to know that- say, I'm just as much a user as you. Right. I learned from Daily Tech News Show from Tom Merritt that, um, and I guess had I thought about it, I would have realized it on my own, is that Patreon doesn't handle the money itself, the actual transaction. It's done through- um, uh, Oh, well, PayPal. For PayPal. Me. Yeah, it's done through PayPal. So your your money connection has not been. It's just merely that you've been pledged through this. It might, uh, if they had a security problem, which they haven't had one, they could maybe get to your username and your email, something like that. But it, but it, they wouldn't be able to get to your money just yeah. from breaching if there if there were a breach because they laid off their uh, security team. So it's just kind of I, I just kind of want to put it in here to put a pin in it, keep an eye on it. Yeah, it depending on what they've actually done, this is either a good news story or a bad news story, and they haven't told us enough to know. So it's in that lovely Schrodinger's news story. <laughs> right? Yes. Security is alive or dead. We don't know if there's because, a fire extinguisher unless there is. Right. I mean, it, they're not a big company, right? They're not a they're not a Microsoft. They're, they're not this huge organization. So if they have their own security team, that team is going to be limited in size. We think it was five. We're not 100% sure there weren't, there weren't more people before the last five were let go. Mm. So it's possible the five were the rump and there used to be more. Or it's possible the five were all there ever was, right. which is not a big team. They can't have the kind of experience you would have if you, can't, if you do basically, it's called SOC as a service is now the new thing in the security industry. So a security operations center as a service. Mm-hmm. So if you contract a SOC, they are going to have a team of hundreds of people who are all specialists in a specific area, but you as a small company get a share of the specialists with really broad experience. So your security level goes right up and your bill may actually go up. It may actually, it's, to get a really good SOC is probably more expensive than an in-house team, but your security goes up too. Or you could outsource it to five idiots in Bangalore <laughs> who have no experience, no, no nothing, so just knowing that those five people are gone and they're not being replaced tells us nothing of value. And Either it got better or Bangalore. worse. No, I mean, they, sorry, it could be five people in Five idiots in anywhere. X. Five idiots, yeah, exactly. You can outsource to idiots or you can outsource to the most amazing service. Until we know more, we don't know, we don't know anything. And, and they could have done a better job of explaining Oh, this. yeah. Yeah, just telling us that we contract with outside experts who help us monitor our security. I'd like to know more, please. Yeah. I guess it's better than saying, oh, no, we don't need them. That would have been the worst answer. <laughs> oh, no, no, we're fine. We're, we're fine. Good. We don't need those. We're feeling lucky. <laughs> yeah. Oh, God. Yeah, that, that Google button looks very scary in this context, doesn't it? Um, the last two stories here have an icon I don't use very often, the little pushpin icon. These are two stories that have the potential to develop into something very significant, but haven't matured yet. Australia's e-safety commissioner has sent legal letters to Apple, Google, Meta and Microsoft, demanding that they explain within 28 days all of their systems for fighting CSAM on their platforms. 
that will be very interesting to see 28 days after that letter was sent what they reply with. But we're still waiting because it hasn't been 28 days. I mean, is Apple's letter going to say, this is what we wanted to do? Yeah, well, I mean, all of their systems is bigger, so a lot of the parental stuff that is already in there will should go in that letter. So sure, th- it could be did. a list of everything they are doing, and this is what we wanted to do. I, I would wonder whether there'll be any like whether there'll be any snark. Yeah, I, I, I'm very curious to see what we get back from this. Very curious. So I think it's interesting that this, we're going to have these replies. So well, we get to see them. That's another question, right? I assume we would. My understanding with these kind of government requests is that the answer is yes. When you have commissioners and stuff, that's that's generally for public consumption. It's their job to be our, you know, the advocates of the people. So I think, oh, I hope the answer is yes. <laughs> I was sort of assuming it was. What? Oh, I hope I'm not wrong. Oh, anyway, we shall see. Um, we'll certainly know if the commissioner is cranky. <laughs> because if the commissioner is cranky, then we'll hear a follow-up news story of, and Apple are under investigation, or Microsoft or whoever. The other one, Dan, is very local to you. Um, the two houses of your state legislature have both it, passed... The state of California the, he's talking about. That's a good point, I should have said. Uh, the California Age-Appropriate Design Code, which is a very strange name for a US law because they generally end in the word act. And if you want to know why it's such a strange name, listen to the wonderful conversation with Alison, Tom and co on DTNS4344 because it turns out it's a UK idea being ported to California and I'm not sure that that... I think that may be a three-pin plug trying to smash into an American socket. Yeah, to back up a little bit, this is a uh, Save the Children uh, Code Law Act that is in uh, the the idea is to try to protect kids eighteen under eighteen, and it's got a lot of language in it that makes sense under UK law, under the way things work, but don't necessarily make sense. The way Tom explained it was that there's a concept in UK law of best effort, like you tried yes. to figure out how old the kid was, then you know, good job, at least you gave it your best shot you know, small penalty or whatever if you didn't succeed. But in the United States, it's more cut and dry. You did it or you did or did not do. And the instructions in this don't give you a way to know how to do what they're telling you to do. So the interesting thing is it did pass the the um, two chambers of the House, or the House and the and the Senate, I guess it's called, in the, in the state. And yet it hasn't been made into law by the governor yet, but they it passed in both by uh, everything to zero. So I oh, guess to zero. Yes. Yeah, nobody wanted to be in the you didn't want to save the children category, so they all went together. And yet, it doesn't look like there's ways to actually comply with it, which makes it really entertaining. So it's it's real <laughs> and it, entertaining. That's a nice word. The reason that you care, even if you're not in California, is if this is passed and it it applies to companies like Facebook and and Apple and everybody that these things tend to propagate across uh, the country and across the world. Sometimes the things that happen in California, because those companies are in California as well, and because California is such a popular state with so which such a sizable chunk of America's economy, if right. California was an independent nation, it would be one of the biggest economies in the world. Yep, 12% of the United States lives in California. Yeah. So uh, just for people, the biggest issue is that in Europe and in, and the UK, even though they're not quite European anymore these days, but even in Europe, in the UK, 
the relationship between regulators and companies is completely different. It's a sort of a, we will meet you, we will negotiate, we will discuss, we will come to an arrangement. Whereas in the US, it's we will sue you and we will see you in court. And that's a very different process to what goes on in the UK. So in the UK, these kind of regulations make sense because they are the guide rails for that negotiation between the regulator and the companies. So basically, it's the marching orders for the regulators. But in the US, in a court system, that's just become the marching orders for a judge and a jury. I I don't think they're adequate. Yeah, it's it'll be real interesting to see whether the pushback from... um, some of the industry and the EFF and more, you know, we all want to save the children, but you got to be more specific. You can't give us, I, what was it? One of them was like, stop dark patterns or something vague. Like, I was like, wait, what? But that's a great guideline for a regulator. Yeah. Right. If you're, if you're a regulator trying to figure out what you should be negotiating with these companies, that's really useful. But if your only mechanism of action is court cases, that's awful. Yeah. Like, okay, how do you define it? I'll know it when I see it. Oh, <laughs> one of the worst things ever said by a Supreme Court judge. Justice. I'm going to be precise. They're justices. So anyway, yeah, you guys had a really good conversation on DTNS, so I will direct the listeners there. Excellent. Um, okay, so that then takes us on to um, Excellent Explainers is where I decided to wedge this story in. It's, this is not a story. This is just an article from Naked Security that made me say yes, yes, yes. Uh, so... Basically, when it comes to having dates in stuff that you need to audit, like logs and stuff, always, 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 always keep them in Zulu, which is universal coordinated time, and always, always have them in year, month, day, hours, minutes, seconds. Or ISO 8601, or the subset of ISO 8601, or FC 3339. And then your dates will sort lexically, and no matter how many times summertime comes and goes, they will all be correct. You can correlate your web server logs with your email server logs, with your firewall logs. They will all always match. <laughs> or so at least they'll all change to together. <laughs> right, exactly. So if your computer has to read it, it's ISO 8601. I, I, um, oh, I love ISO 8601. This is my absolute favorite. So if you want to know why and you want to hear someone who's not me tell you why, Naked Security have a really fun post explaining the problem and then offering the very straightforward solution. All right, that sounds fun. Interesting insights then. Um, This is, yeah, it's an interesting insight. So Brian Krebs is a security reporter whose main beat is cybercrime. And that means that he is very interested in how the bad guys make money, which is why I always follow him, because follow the money is a really good way to understand what the incentives are for the, you know, Threat hackers fall into sort of nation states who are interested in spying and stuff, uh, activists who are interested in making a point, and cyber criminals who want to money. And if you want to know what the cyber criminals are up to, follow Brian Krebs. But he has pointed to a bigger thread that ties together a whole bunch of recent breaches, which is that the bad guys are going after services that sell two-factor authentication based on sending codes. So that's how Twilio got hacked, which has had an impact. Uh, oh, myself and Tom talked about it last time. Which company was it was gotten by Twilio, which was gotten by Okta, yeah. which is one of these companies doing the one-time codes. It all basically it all ties together. And what it the real point I took away from reading the article, which is just interesting to see what they're up to. Codes, whether they be over SMS or some other mechanism, are a stopgap. They're a halfway house between passwords, which are terrible, and really good 2FA, which is amazing. Uh, 
We need to move on to FIDO or passkeys. So we need to passcodes to be specific, you're talking about the kind you get texted, not the kind that are in your uh, to a, in your one-time passcode inside OnePass or, or uh, OnePassword or... No, if you Google have to type it in as a human, they are vulnerable to these attacks. You, you can now type. buy pro- real-time proxy as a service. So you can buy someone sitting in a call center somewhere, watching a screen... So they send you to a phishing site where you will type in the code you're asked for in real time. The oh, bad right, guys right. will watch you and they will do it in real time. And you can buy that as a service now. Okay. So what are you talking about when you say really good 2FA? FIDO or passkeys. Oh, FIDO. Okay. okay. All right. Basically, or the equivalent only uh, unbranded. So, the kind of where uh, the human doesn't get to, to help? The kind where the human doesn't get to help because they're not helping. They're, they, they, the human helps in the same way that a four-year-old helps you bake. <laughs> Flour all over the kitchen. Flour all over the kitchen. And maybe if you're lucky at the end of the process, there's a scone of some sort to eat. Probably not. So, yeah, it's just interesting that, you know, it was better than nothing and it still is better than nothing. But now that it's being sold as a service, well, that means cybercrime can now just put it on the spreadsheet. There is a spreadsheet somewhere with cybercriminals basically going, how much will it cost us to bypass this type of two-factor auth? Oh, okay, we can afford that. And off we go. Wow. Yikes. So, yeah. As I say, always good to read Brian Krebs. If you're curious, the article explains all. Uh, And then I have it just because it's cool. So, on the one hand, if I tell you that researchers found some bugs, responsibly disclosed them, and they were fixed promptly... Would that excite you? I mean, that sounds like, you know, dog bites man. That's not a new story, right? That's really boring. The reason this is interesting is because how did they do it? The security researchers have developed a new technique for automatically finding a whole new type of software bug. Without needing to spend human time, they can just throw this algorithm at large open source code bases like Node.js and find hundreds of bugs that are years and years and years old automatically by doing source code analysis. It is a fascinating new technique. Yeah. They basically draw a social graph of the code (laughs) and they discover that you, this variable is actually supposed to have this. And then later on in the code, you send it a string. Therefore we now have this kind of vulnerability and they basically map the code out and then they can see patterns in the map that tell them auga auga. And oh, so they wow. pointed it at Node.js, which is a huge code base, and they found a whole bunch of bugs, reported them responsibly, they were fixed. And then they went to a conference and explained their methods. And their methods are going to be a big deal. This is going to make a lot of software a lot more secure. So that's why it's in, because it's cool. Okay, that is really cool. Yeah. And then you get to clean to finish this out with a palate cleanser. So this is just fun. Um, there's a, a tweet that someone named Madza, Madza Dev put out. It's a photo of a book that is, what do you think, 25,000 pages long? It's got to be because it's standing maybe I, three I'd or count four it feet in tall. feet. Yeah, maybe three I'd or four. I'd count it in feet. Three or four feet tall sitting on a table. And the, and the, uh, the tweet is simply, give this book a coding-related title. And you have to just scan through the responses that people came up with titles for this. Especially if you're a developer, it's really, really, really funny. And and the the uh, mutations of people's answers on top of the others is, is just hysterical. It's, it's really, really fun. 
Yeah. And if you have a cool answer, A, reply in a tweet, but maybe also pop into our Slack and join the conversation there because Alison also posted the tweet there. Yeah. <laughs> I, my contribution wasn't all that brilliant, but I said the source code to Windows. Yeah. <laughs> that must be at least that big. But anyway. I, I love I I don't want to read any of them because I'll just get started and never stop. But it, I thought it was really fun. I got a, I got a big tickle out of it. Yeah, it's, it's, it's always fun when you have something open-ended like that and you just let the community go. Because you discover that the community is full of really funny people. I've discovered that the best way to get responses to your tweets is to ask people to weigh in on something. If, you know, telling people something might be interesting, but asking them, everybody wants to give you their opinion and how they, you know, not the snotty stuff. I mean, the fun stuff, you know, picture of yeah. your cat, say, caption this. People love that. That's a really good point. That's way much more fun than here's my cool cat doing funny thing I just made up. Yeah. 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 Don't, don't put yeah. your own caption on it. Make them make them help you and they, they get they get involved. They become invested in it. That's a really good tip. You should be you should be like a social media guru. Fantastic <laughs> way to get more hits. All right. Well, uh, this was a lot of fun and I guess we think we'll be talking in 2 weeks. We'll have to look at the schedule and see if that's right, but that sounds good to me. That is the approximate plan and goodness only knows how reality will intervene. But anyway, whenever it is we chat again, Until then, remember, folks, stay patched so you stay secure. Well, that's going to wind us up for this week. Did you know you can email me anytime you like at allison at podfeed.com. If you have questions or suggestions, how about a dumb question? We haven't had a dumb question in a long time. I got a jingle for it and everything. Need some dumb questions. Those are questions that you think everybody else knows the answer to, but you just don't know. I love those. Don't make them too hard, though. Anyway, you can follow me on Twitter at PodFeed. If you want to join in the fun of the conversation, you can join our Slack community. Bruce used the data, the guy that did the great review this week. He's in there all the time. You can go there at podfeed.com slash Slack, where you can talk to me and all of the other lovely Nocilla castaways. Remember, everything good starts with podfeed.com. You can support the show at podfeed.com slash Patreon or the one-time donation at podfeed.com slash PayPal, like Christoph and Janet. And if you want to join in the fun of the live show, head on over to podfeet.com slash live on Sunday nights at 5 p.m. Pacific time and join the friendly and enthusiastic Nocilla Castaways. Thanks for listening and stay subscribed. See, Bruce, we're still staying subscribed. Subscribed.